Good morning. We are talking about our relationship with God and how it is that we relate to God and, and whether or not that is a something that we think about all the time. Maybe it's something that's kind of underneath the surface. And a lot of us, we, we tend to operate in a relationship with God according to certain things, and we don't know what's driving the relationship. We just kind of do it out of habit. And sometimes it can feel like we're in a relationship with God and we're kind of stuck. We don't really feel like we're moving forward. We don't really feel like we're getting closer. We're just kind of going through the motions. Our wheels are spinning maybe. We think we're maybe doing all the right things. But at the end of the day, if you were to say, is it satisfying? Is it life-transforming? Sometimes maybe the answer is no or not as much as it could be. And, And so throughout this series, we are kind of bringing to the surface a lot of traps in terms of the way that we often relate to God, but we may not be aware of it. Um, And last week, what we talked about is a a way of relating to God, which we called life from God, which was basically the idea that I live my life in such a way that I ask God for things, and when He provides them to me, I'm satisfied. I live life from Him. He's the giver, I'm the receiver, and when He gives things to me, I receive them from Him and we're on good terms. But what we found out is that oftentimes that mode of relating to God brings us to a place of unsatisfaction because it just ends up that we rely on the gifts that we get from God and not actually the person of God. What He can give us becomes our treasure rather than He Himself. And we end up living for those gifts. So as long as those gifts are coming our way, we're pretty happy about it. But as soon as those gifts stop, now me and God, we have a problem. We've got a big big thing going on. And and it's all a, a product of a consumeristic mindset that permeates all of American culture. And we may not be aware of just how much it's infiltrated our own lives, but it has. So that's what we talked about last week. So so what we're talking about this week is actually, if you were to swing the pendulum, if that's one side of things, just seeing a relationship with God is all about being a receiver of gifts that God can give you. What happens if you swing the pendulum the entire opposite way and say, I'm only going to live my life for God. I'm not looking to see what He can give to me. I'm looking to only see what I can give back to Him. I live my life for Him. Isn't that a better way to live life? Um, and I, I will, I'll start it kind of this way. When, when we went down to Haiti, um, a lot of us as Americans uh, have this idea in our mind that we are going to go down to a place and do things for the community that we're a part of. And so we get on an airplane and we get all set and we get all our support together. We get all our gear and all of our stuff. And a lot like the guy in the video, we think we're going to go down there and just knock stuff out, you know? Like as if they can't do things for themselves. We're just going to we're going to be the heroes. We're going to show up on the ground with all of our American kind of can-doism and we're just going to do everything for these guys, and boy, aren't they going to be grateful by the time we leave that we showed up and did all this stuff for them. And and it's interesting because what you find out when you go down to Haiti, they are much harder workers than we are. And and they do things better than we do. And and they know their community better than we do. 
And they know their children better than we do. And they, they actually have their hand on the pulse of what God is all about and, and what he's up to in their world better than we do. And so w- when we go in with a mindset that we're going to do something for them, about midweek we get corrected in that mindset and we start going, wait a second, I'm actually here to do stuff with them. And I didn't realize it before. And I need to readjust the way that I've been thinking about this whole thing because I've been here for them and all of a sudden I, when I leave, when I get on the plane to go home, I feel like I've had an experience with them and I've gained just as much as I've given to them. And sometimes the, way that I, the reason that I do that kind of on the front end is because oftentimes we can live our life thinking that we're living it for God when God Himself is kind of going, I'm not really asking you to live life for me. All I'm, do, all I'm asking is that you would live life with me and if you did, things might change a little bit. And so he, I know this is going on as soon, as soon as I kind of mentioned this style of thinking because a lot of us in the church will then think in our, our minds, wait a second, time out here, hold on. Um, I thought it was all about living life for God. Like, isn't that better than living life from Him? I mean, isn't the goal not to live in such a consumeristic way that we're just expecting God to shower us with stuff. Like, if I move to, kind of away from living life for God and start to, or from Him and start to live life for Him, isn't that a better way to live my life? Isn't that what the church kind of teaches and models and hopes to get from people? Is that they would kind of get off their rear ends and into the game and start serving God and living for Him and doing stuff for Him? Isn't that the goal? (laughs) Not the way that I framed it, obviously, right? Well, the answer is yes and no. See, all of these things that we've been talking about through this whole series, they're twists on what we've actually been created in a way to relate to God in. And so if we try to live any of these things that we've been talking about the last four weeks, to live life over Him or under Him, from Him or for Him, then then we end up replacing a relationship with God with something inferior to it. And, And many of us have settled for those inferior things. And that's the reason that we're trying to debunk all of these things and talk about what life with God could look like. Because when we end up exchanging those things, I promise you, you will end up in a relationship with God disappointed, frustrated, doubtful, uh, any other kind of negative words or terms you could possibly think of, even in shame, because you don't see a relationship with God rightly from the way that He sees it. And it's often our mindset that we are quick to exchange a life with God for all these other things. And it works the same way with life for God. And it works so well in the church that pastors tend to be the ones who often fall into this trap more than any other people. Because we pastors are the ones who work for God, right? I mean, it's in the job description. It's part of the package. When you sign up for it, you are by nature working for God. And it is a weekly, if not daily, struggle. I'm just being totally honest with you as your pastor and leader. Not to view daily life as being in a work relationship with God. 
And I know that if it's an issue for me, sometimes it can come out in the way that I teach, and inadvertently it can make its way into your life, and you can start to pick up the idea that what God most wants from you is to work for Him and not live life with Him. And this is a disaster every time. It will actually lead you to a great amount of frustration. And as we've been talking about through this whole series, it will fail to give you any sense of real control or mitigate any fear that you've got going on in your life. But if you start to live your life with God, if you get that part right, then the rest actually follows from a right motivation. Um, but here, here's the, the scary part. We can actually live our lives for God and never actually know God. Did you know that that's possible? You can live your entire life thinking in your mind that you are doing the right things, living the right way, doing everything that you can for God. You can be the best church attender, small group attendance person, um, serving your guts out in every area of ministry and yet be disconnected from God. And Jesus himself actually talks about that uh, in Matthew 7. He mentions this, um, which is probably one of the most frightening verses in the entire Bible, but he says this, Many will say to me on that day, that day being the day when he comes, returns to take for himself his church, his people, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? In other words, God, didn't we do stuff for you? I mean, look at the list. Look at all the demons we knocked out. I mean, they are gone, right? All the miracles we performed, all the things that we did, all the lives that we changed, all the people that we fed, all the service that we did. Look at my list, God. You think maybe Jesus is impressed with that. I don't know. But then you see the next verse and it says, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Frightening, isn't it? That, that you can actually live your entire life thinking that you and God are on good terms only to discover that you ever actually knew Him relationally. And how often in our lives do we, when we're kind of presented with the choice of doing something where we actually push away work and live a bit of life with God, or, or choosing to do something for Him where we feel like we're being useful or active, and we choose the latter rather than the former. We choose to live life for God rather than with Him. There's something seriously messed up with the way that we value the things that we do and what actually brings life to us and motivates us to live more relationally with God. Um, last week, if you remember, we started talking through a story in Luke 15, and we're going to pick it up uh, in just a moment. It's on page 726 if you're going to follow along. Um, but we started out the story talking about the, the story of the prodigal son. And I mentioned last week that we have titled that story, the story of the prodigal son, singular, but that it's actually inaccurate because there are two sons in the story. But oftentimes we read the story as if it's the first, the younger son, that has the issue, 
And the older son, the one that's done everything right, he's got his act together, and he's living life fine. It's all about the problems of the younger son and God forgiving him for those things. But what we actually learn when we read the story is that there are two sons that need an adjustment. And the older one, the one that's obedient, the one that never rebelled against his father, he's just in need of forgiveness and grace as the younger one. Um, but, but we rarely give attention to that son. And so what we're going to do is we're going to finish the story this morning to talk about what it looks like to actually live life for God and when that becomes dangerously unhealthy for all of us to do, just as it was for this particular son. What we're going to see is he's just as guilty as trying to live his life in a way that he's gaining something from his father rather than living in the presence of his father. So we're going to start with Luke 15. We're going to pick it up with uh, verse 25. And uh, here is what it says. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. In other words, you remember what, what, what was the younger son doing this whole time? Remember? Partying, right? And what happened when, he, when the party ended? When, when his bankroll kind of Hit, hit the bottom line. Yeah, he, he spent some time in a pig party, right? Um, which is a whole different kind of deal. And, and then he came to his senses, right? And he, he decides to come back to his father. And what we learned is that his father, rather than holding his disobedience against him, ran to his son, embraced him, welcomed him back into relationship, and he's starting to throw a party for his son. So... Keep all that in the back of your mind. Where's the older son the entire time that the younger son is being disobedient? Working his butt off, right? I mean, he is in the fields, which wasn't a particularly easy job at this point. It's not like you got on your John Deere and you know, you're riding around in your hat and your earphones listening to your favorite tunes. You're behind an ox with, with a trowel, like, you know, doing serious manual labor, right? It is difficult work, and he is what he's going to say himself is he is slaving for his father the entire time that his younger, irresponsible brother is out having the time of his life. Very important. So when he comes to the house, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Hmm, I wonder what's going on, right? So he, he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So the older brother has been obedient to his father working in the field. Parents, if you were looking for a good son, you couldn't get any better than the son in this story. Like, he brushes his teeth when you ask him to, you know, he, he, he leaves when you need to leave. He comes back when you want to come back. He eats lunch when you ask him to eat lunch. He, when you ask him to do a chore, it's done. You know, There's no delay. There's no like, yeah, I'll get around to it when I get around to it, Dad. Thank you very much. Like, he is the ultimate obedient child. How many of you would love a child like that? How many of you have a child like that? Notice I put my hand down, right? Um, This is the son that every parent dreams of. 
And yet, you think, okay, if, if he's coming back and he finds out that his estranged brother, who everyone was thought, thought was dead, is back, and they're throwing a party in his honor, how should this, this older son, who has been obedient the entire time, how should he respond? He should celebrate. Here's the thing. If he was really understanding it correctly, what has the father already said to the younger son? Um, I value you, is what he said, essentially, right? You were dead and you're now alive, and, and no matter what you've done, I now accept you back into my life because what I really was after was you and not, not anything that you could give me in return. So, so if that's the father's perspective, that all he really wants is to be in relationship with his two sons, what should the response of the older son be? Exactly the same as his father, right? If he really understood that what was most important was living life with his father and not living life for his father, then he would have absolutely no reason not to accept and welcome his son and party it up just like his father was doing. Because here's the great thing. The older son never knew what it was like to be disconnected from his father. He had what he needed the entire time. He had a relationship with his father. And so when the younger son comes back and gets back into relationship with his father, who he's been enjoying the entire time, the response should be, welcome back. You've been gone a long time. Here's what you've been missing. It's great that that you're back here because this is where you belong. You are part of our family. The same way that his father responds to the younger son. See, if the whole point of life is to live life closer in relationship with God, then shouldn't we be thrilled when those who are less deserving of God's grace find it and accept it for their own? Shouldn't those of us that have experienced kind of what God has actually done for us in Christ be so grateful when other people in our lives come to understand it and recognize it for themselves and accept it apart from what they've done? Yet, let, let, do, do you know that Jesus spent most of his time with people that didn't deserve the grace that he poured out on them? And it was those people who lived their lives well, those people that followed the rules, those people that lived according to the law of God that were most resentful of Jesus and the people that he spent time with. And yet, if you look at churches... We tend to attract the people that want to live most obediently and repel those who are most in need of grace. Did you ever notice that? Those people who have been through the ringer of life and have continually, time after time after time, chosen destructive paths for their own life and are now reaping the, the benefits of their decisions, those are the ones that keep furthest away from the church and its activity. Did you know that? 
It's those people who are making healthy decisions for themselves and want a better life for themselves and their children that find their way through the doors of a church gathering to be in the seats like you guys are today. And yet Jesus, it was opposite. He, he repelled those people who were living up to a certain standard and he drew to himself those who needed grace because they knew that they could never earn it themselves. It's interesting, isn't it? It kind of makes me wonder if we're telling the same message that Jesus did or, or if we're living the same way that Jesus did and expressing the same amount of grace to those who are undeserving as Jesus did. Because if we were, we would be attracting the same people that Jesus did. It's just something to think about. And yet the, the, the older son, he, he is the one that's been charged with the responsibility, in a sense, of showing the most amount of grace to his son, or to, to his younger brother, just as his father did. And you think, okay, if he should be working in this way, then he has no reason not to join the party. I mean, he shouldn't be standing on the sidelines. He should be engaging, right? Because he has no reason to hold anything against his younger brother if his father has already forgiven him. And yet, let's look what he does instead, right? Verse 28, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, it's always a great way to start a conversation with your dad, right? You can't tell he's ticked off, can you? All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. Why is his brother so ticked off? Why is he so mad? Jealousy, right? And what's motivating that jealousy? What did he think was the thing that earned his father's approval and gifts in his life? Utter obedience, right? The more that I obey, the more that I'm good, the more that I follow the rules, the more it earns me the right to receive the gifts that God will give me. So as I'm obedient, my obedience earns me approval, and that approval earns me good gifts. And yet my father has never given me even a young calf to celebrate with my friends. And this son, this son who has never earned the Father's approval, he gets the gifts from God. I am outraged, right? Totally and utterly outraged. What is he actually saying? And this is kind of the subtle part of the story. This is kind of the message under the message that he's giving his Father. He's saying, look, I've only been obedient to you because I thought that it would earn me the thing that I really want from you. My inheritance. Dad, I've only been doing all this. I've only been slaving and being obedient to you so that you would give me stuff. 
and you've never given me anything. And this one who's never done anything for you, you've given him everything. See, he's actually after the same thing that the younger brother was, isn't he? he he's after the stuff that his father can give him rather than his father. He's after the same exact thing, only he takes a different route to get it. And rather than trying to gain it through disobedience and brazen asking, he tried to gain it through obedience. Steady, measured obedience over time would ultimately win him the day and get him the things that he truly wanted. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it because he says it better than I can. Um, He says, Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the Father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving Him for His own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him either by breaking His rules or by keeping all of them diligently. And and this this is the best part. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Did you know that? You can actually live your life in such a way where you are using every rule and your obedience to that rule to gain something for yourself from God under the the guise of living your life for God. And here's the thing. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever know. You can live your whole life looking really spiritual, looking like you're doing everything possible to live your life for God, but secretly, deep down in your heart, you can be wishing that you were getting stuff from God, which is what's motivating you to live in obedient fashion. See, both sons are lost in the story, are they not? Both sons are in need of correction. Both were more focused on what they could get from their father rather than building a relationship with their father, and both were using them for an ulterior motive. And and this is what happens when life from God how subtly reinforces the lie that what matters most is not God's love for you, His acceptance and approval of you apart from what you can do for Him, but how much you can accomplish for God. Because the more that you accomplish for Him, the more He'll love you in return, and the more He'll give you the things that you truly desire. It's really twisted and messed up when you actually take the covering off of it, right? When you start to drill down and actually look at it for what it is. And here's the thing. The church in general, and even our church specifically, falls into this trap more than every single one of them. And sometimes we can teach in such a way that we are trying to motivate people to go from living a life from God to living a life for Him without the connection of living life with Him. And as I was studying this particular section for today... um, I, came, I, I went through and started to look at some of my past teachings, and I know that there are times when I have taught from this spot here and tried to motivate you to live less for yourselves and more for God without the with in between. I just, I know it. 
There, there are a few times specifically that I can go back and look and recount times that I've done that. And so I need to repent before you and ask for your forgiveness for that. Because it's not the life that God wants for you. And any motivation that you try to use to live a life for Him that doesn't include what God has already done on your behalf through His Son to forgive you of your sin and give you new life will ultimately result in your devastating relationship with Him. It will not go well for you. You you will live in such a way where you're constantly wondering, have I done enough to earn it? And that is never a right motivation for doing anything for God. The more that you believe that life is all about living for Him, the more you will base God's acceptance of you upon what you can accomplish for Him. And all of that is a denial of the Gospel. So, so here's kind of the, the big idea. Life for God, it sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, I, I'm living life for Him. I'm doing things for Him. It, it all looks good on the outside. But, but all of it will only crush us under the weight of our own need to perform for God's favor. We, we will end up devastated in the end. The more that we try to live for Him, the less we can live with Him because we believe that it's our responsibility to satisfy God's approval of us. So, how do you know if this is you? I mean, unless you're, unless you're kind of like highly aware that this is going on in your life, it's probably not the kind of thing that you're fully aware of in any sense. I mean, think of the brother. Um, the, the older brother doesn't really realize that he's living life for his father's approval, does he? I mean, he's still kind of stuck in, in this place where he's actually trying to earn his father's approval to get something from him, but he's not aware that it's all happening. It's just going on for him. So, so what are some ways that you can actually identify whether or not this is true of you and the way that you live? And the reason that we do some, something like this oftentimes is not to condemn you for any action, but it's so that you can identify areas that actually are, are revealing your own heart so that you can deal with them with the, by the gospel and be set free from them. But, but it's important for us to know some of the symptoms so that you can deal with the actual disease, right? If you don't know what to look for, in terms of the symptoms, how will you ever look for a resolution? You'll just think that that's the way that life is, and you'll continue to operate that way. So, so here's some uh, indications that you're falling into this kind of life for God trap. Um, the, the first one is this. We're going to do five of these, I think. When you think about... Here's the reality. All of us sin. All of us. Some of us fall into sin that, that is blatantly outward in appearance and we would be able to identify that as real sin and others of us struggle on a daily basis with things like hate or doubt or or judgment of other people or whatever the case might be it may be subtle it may be you know extreme but all of us struggle on a daily basis with this and god has provided for us a means by which to confess and be released from sin called jesus and His Spirit that lives within us. 
But knowing all that, okay, um, when you fall into sin, and I know that it happens for each one of you because I know that you're human beings, just as I am, when you sin, if I were to ask you the question, what does God see in you? How does he view you it, at the moment of your sin? What does he see in you at the moment you're committing a particular sin? If the first answer that comes to your mind is disappointed, then you probably live a life for God and not with him. Because if life is all about being good and kind of stacking the deck in your favor to earn approval of God, then every step off the path is is kind of knocking that deck down, and we will look at God and we'll say, you're probably disappointed with me at this moment. When the reality is that God loves you in every single moment. Did you know that? And he knew every single one of your sins before you commit them. And he was willing still to go to the cross and to die for those sins, even though he knew each and every one of them. So, so the next time that you sit down at your computer to look at pornography, know that Jesus already knew that you were going to do it and died for it anyway. The next time you're going to speak harshly to your spouse, know that Jesus knew about it and already died for it. It kind of changes things, doesn't it? And you think, well, if I really believed that, I wouldn't do it. And that's exactly the point. God loves you, and even in the midst of your sin, he is never disappointed with you. He wouldn't have gone to the cross otherwise. Did you know that? All right, the second thing is this. Um, when you think about life, your life in particular, you often think about how you can make a difference in the world. And let me say, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make a difference in the world. But those who struggle with this life for God exclusively will continually think about how they're making an impact in the world because secretly they fear living a life of insignificance. Constantly thinking, is my life going to matter? Are people going to remember me? Is it all worth something in the end? Am, am I living life in such a way that it is making a significant impact in the world? We will be consumed with that question. And it will pop up in our life. Uh, by, we'll, we'll ask things like, what is God's will for my life? Am I really living rightly? And many times we'll end up jumping from place to place to place to place. We'll never actually get rooted anywhere or develop relationships deeply anywhere because we'll think, man, it's got to be better somewhere else. People that jump from job, like one job to another, and hold like three jobs in five years tend to struggle with this. Why? Because you start to go to a job thinking that you're having an impact and you're making a difference in the world, and then you learn, man, this job is just like every other job. I mean, the job I came from was better than this job. I'm just up to my eyeballs in paperwork. Is it really making a difference in the world? And so we'll say, I've got to go somewhere else where I'll actually make a difference. 
And so we'll start job searching and we'll jump from one to the next, thinking that that will be the thing that satisfies us, that will be the thing that makes us feel significant in the world. And what we find is every time we jump, it's just the same as the one that we came from. Do you struggle with living a life of significance? Third is this. Um, When you actually do accomplish something for God, you want everyone and their mother-in-law to make sure that they know, see, and acknowledge the fact that you've done something good and right for God. And so it's no longer just about doing something for God. We think, man, not only do I need to do it, but everybody's got to know about it. And so, and it may be the most menial of tasks, but you've got to make sure that somebody else acknowledges the fact that you've been such a good servant over that area. I mean, look at how humble I am, right? <clears throat> and if they don't, you get really angry because you think that nobody sees, that nobody acknowledges, and nobody expresses gratitude for what you've done. Um, what about this one? When God does show favor to someone else, who's been less obedient than you, it causes you to resent them and become angry with God. That's the older brother, right? I've done so much more than this little twerp, and you're giving him the blessing. And lastly, this one, and this is a problem for a lot of people, including myself. You have a hard time just resting. Just resting. Because when you do, you feel useless. Do you have a hard time coming home and just letting go of work? Do you have a hard time just like playing with your kids rather than thinking about your calendar and your to-do list and all the responsibilities that are going on in life? If you do, then chances are you think that the world actually is upheld by your effort and your good work. (laughs) I'm just being totally honest with you. Here's the tragedy of all these things. If your goal is to live life for God because you subconsciously believe that your performance equals God's acceptance of you, sadly, you will never know the gracious freedom of living life for, or with God and His love for you. It, it will be absent from your life. And you know what word you will never use to describe a relationship with God? Intimate. That word will be stricken from your vocabulary. How in the world could I be intimate with somebody who I'm always trying to impress? It's difficult for somebody to to be intimate with their boss, right? Leadership by, by necessity means that you're in a level of authority over other people, and it puts distance between you and the people who are under you. Those of you who have gotten a job promotion have experienced this firsthand. You're like great buddies with the people that you work with. Like you hang out after work and you do all kinds of stuff and you're sharing life a little bit together. And then you get promoted into a position of authority over them and what happens to the relationship? It's distant. And now all of a sudden, people are having conversations at the water cooler and you're not involved in them anymore. Right? Why is that? Because it's very hard to be intimate with somebody who your job performance is tied to their approval of you. Very, very difficult. And it works the same way with God. If you see yourself as needing to earn His approval, you will always miss out on the gracious love of God in His life, in His love for you. 
And sadly, that's what God's intention is for you. And we can see it in the Father's intention for His Son because He says this to Him. My Son, the Father said, You are always with Me. In other words, you have the most valuable gift. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, what brought the father joy was not the older son's obedience, but simply his presence. He enjoyed his son and was glad of the fact that he was around. Probably all the more so because he had lost his younger brother. The sons were fixated on their father's wealth and their father was was fixated on them. So this may be the most important thing that you can take away from this morning. Your acceptance before the father is not in your doing. It is in your being. It's in who you are. It's in the fact that He loves you as you are, sometimes in spite of who you are. And He lovingly pursues you over and over and over again, apart from what you can do for Him. The Gospel is this. um, You in Christ are more deserving of disapproval than you realize you are. None of us have actually lived the life that would earn God's approval. And despite our efforts to do so, all of us fall short of it. Every single time. And yet in Christ, the perfect one who did live the life that only he could live to earn the approval of God, he transfers that life onto you and you become more approved and loved and accepted than you ever thought possible. And it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. You don't earn that approval based on what you've done. You earn that approval based on what Christ has done on your behalf. And so here's the truth. If you feel like you're living life burdened and heavy laden and just feel like there is a weight on you all the time, Jesus said himself, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So if you feel like life has kind of pressed down on you, then it's not Jesus' yoke you're carrying. Because if it were, it would be easy. If it were, you would be unburdened. If it were, you would be able to rest and find grace and, and live life knowing that you have the approval of your Father. And here's the, the best part. The person that we often point to as being the one who has lived their life most for God in, in the entire Bible, apart from Jesus, who would you kind of name as that person? Paul, right? I mean, if there's anybody who knocked out a life for God, it was him. I mean, nobody, I don't think, has planted as many churches across a, such a wide area. Like, if he hadn't done what he did, we all wouldn't be Christians. Did you know that? Like, his impact was that great. I mean, nobody lived their life in such submission to God's will and mission as Paul did. I mean, unbelievable impact in the world. Talk about a significant life. Apart from Christ, I don't think there's ever been anyone that could claim 
as much as he can. And so it's important because if, if living life for God was the highest standard, then we would hear Paul probably say, go out and live a fantastic life for God. And yet what we find is, in one particular letter, he's writing to a church that's doing a lot of things right. He's writing to a church in the city called Ephesus. And he says, I have a prayer for you. This is what I'm praying for you. And so if it was about living life for God, we would probably think that Paul was going to say, live fantastically. Do great things for God. Go out and, and, and kick the world's butt. You know, like, do it all for Jesus. And yet, listen to what he says. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. So here it comes, right? I may, you have, may have power to do something. And so we think, what if, you know, maybe it's to do great things, maybe it's to plant churches, maybe it's to, I don't know. You may have power together with all the saints to do what? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. In other words, what he's saying is, I pray that you have a fantastic life with God. And I pray that you would be so astounded by trying to get your arms around how vast God's love is for you, that it would just fill you up to the brim so that you are overflowing with the presence of God in your life. It doesn't sound very much like a life for God, does it? It sounds very much like a life with God. And here's the amazing part. When you live a fantastic life with God, you end up being a person whose life is incredibly for God. You end up getting the thing that you think you most desire. And your life becomes an enormously impactful life that has tremendous value, but you know that that value is not what earns you approval before the Father. You've already got it. And when you're so filled with the love of Christ that it is pouring out from you, you end up being the most incredible person for God. But it will never come apart from that knowledge. It will never come apart from making God your treasure and not what you do your treasure. So who's your treasure? I hope it's Christ and his life in you. Because if it is, you will be fantastic people for God. If it's not, you're going to end up really frustrated and tormented. Let's pray. Father, I, I do just, I thank you, God, that um, you've done everything necessary to establish a relationship with us. And it's in your Son that we find life, that we find forgiveness and hope and healing. And it's not in Christ that we find a life where we get to do more and work harder. So, God, I pray that that would be primary in our lives. And even now as we're considering our lives and maybe digesting 
what you're saying to us. And I, I pray that you make it known areas in our life where we're maybe looking to try to please you rather than being pleased with the knowledge that you've already done everything in your son. So God, I ask that that would be primary for us. Help us to live fantastic lives with you. Help us to live with you. And then out of that, God, we trust you for the end. We trust that the spirit that lives within us that was powerful enough to raise Christ from the dead will be powerful enough to give us the kind of life that we actually desire, life for you. But none of that is driven by us and our own energy. We know that that's driven by you and your spirit. So God, we, we just ask that you help us to submit to you, to live our lives in you, to be consumed with your love for us. And may that result in a church that understands and applies grace to our lives and gives it freely to those other people who aren't deserving of the grace that you give us.